And as you're being seated, if you would please take out your copies of God's Word and turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Looking in here in verse 20. Just one verse, but don't worry, we'll be looking at the context as we go along. Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 20. It says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to our God in prayer and ask his blessing on our sermon today. Oh, Jesus, we do thank you for this time in which we can look at your word together. Lord, I just pray that you would help us as we examine your word, that we would do so with precision and that we would do so uh, as you have intended. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So for at least this month, perhaps the next two months, but for at least this month, we're going to be taking a look at a new sermon series that I am calling, Oh, So Close. And what we're taking a look at is a list of commonly either misinterpreted, misunderstood, or misapplied verses in the Bible. Uh, This is something that is uh, done a lot in our culture, and I'm just hoping this is an opportunity that we have to take a look and see what do these verses really mean. The reason why I have titled it so close is because a lot of times when we do quote these things, we do misapply them, or close... But it's not the precise meaning of this particular passage there. So as we go through these passages, if we find out, and if you find out, like, ooh, I've misapplied that verse, this does not mean that your salvation is in jeopardy. If you have used the verse that I have just read as a comfort for a sparsely attended prayer meeting, it's okay. That's not the correct interpretation of this verse. But it doesn't mean that you're not saved. What I'm hoping that we can do is to use this passage and use others like it as an opportunity to learn how do we read and interpret the Bible for ourselves. While I love teaching the scriptures, and while I love doing that as something that we need to do together, this is something that I want to tell you. Here is how you can look into the Bible and see what it means for yourself. To just follow precisely what I say and never taking a look at what the scripture says for itself, well, that's how we end up having documentaries made about us. But instead, if we can read the Bible for ourselves, understand what this means, hearing the Bible interpret the Bible, we're going to be well on our way to understand what God really wants to tell us in his word. And to be careful, because there are some passages where it's like, well, in here, the verse 20, using that as for sparsely attended prayer meetings, it is true that God is with us, and that's a slight misstep in our sermon or in our interpretation, but there are other places where we can interpret wrongly where there are a lot of disastrous consequences. Like, for example, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be taking a look at Jeremiah 29.11, which people have thought to mean that, oh, well, if God has plans for me and those are plans for good and not for evil, then that means that my life is going to be great and I can get all the things that I want out of life and apply this Bible verse to it. That's setting up for some terrible consequences later. I actually got a, had the opportunity to walk a couple out of the prosperity gospel. And because all of the things that they were promised didn't happen to them, they had actually had a plan to suicide themselves. 
because they were so discouraged that they thought, well, God must not be real. God must not be what I thought he, that he was. They were so discouraged they were ready to kill themselves. So this is serious work that we're doing. We, it is not enough to just be correct that the Bible teaches this thing. But we need to be precise and say, what does this particular passage have to say to me today? So that's what we're going to look at. Now, in your outline, that's in, on the back of the prayer guide, what you can see are three points. And these are three things that we want to keep in mind. We'll return to these as we go throughout our series, our three points. Well, three things we need to keep in mind. You'll notice it's context, context, context. So first, we need to keep in mind the context of the passage. Context of the passage. The second thing we need to keep in mind is the context of the people. And finally, we need to keep in the context of the prose, or keeping in mind the genre of literature that we're reading. We're going to unfold what each of these things mean. This is going to be kind of an introduction to the series as a whole. And then we're going to look at Matthew 18 specifically as we can see how each of these three things work to tell us what this passage means. So the first thing is we must keep the context of the passage in mind. So when you are looking at any one particular verse in the Bible, you must, at a bare minimum, read the entire chapter that that verse is located in. Most of the time, and in fact a lot of the passages that we will look at over the course of the next few weeks... We will have a correct interpretation if we just read the whole chapter that the verse is contained in. A humorous example of something like this I saw on Facebook one time. They had a little Bible verse, you know, verse of the day kind of flip calendar. And the title of the thing was Inspiring Bible Verses for Your Life. One particular day read from Matthew 4 verse 9, which said, And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, can you see, if you're familiar with that passage of Scripture, why that might not be the most inspiring verse to choose from? Because that's not Jesus talking to the disciples. That's Satan talking to Jesus, trying to tempt him away from the cross. So the caption under that particular picture said, less inspiring when you know who said it. So this is something we can't just cherry pick a single verse and go... And pull it out of its context. We have to read the entire chapter. We know that in real estate, the three most important rules are location, location, location. And as R.C. Sproul had said, the three most important things about scriptural interpretation is context, context, context. Everything has to be read in the context of what is there. Now, when you are doing interpretation of the Bible. The wider of a context you pull from, the more and more you will understand any individual verse. So yes, reading the chapter that it's in, that's the bare minimum. If you want to know a little bit more, read the chapters before and the chapter afterward. If you want to know even more than that, keep the whole message of the book that it's contained in. So in the book of Matthew, what is he talking about? And keeping in mind all of those themes in there then the whole New Testament, and then the entire Bible as to how this interacts with this. Now, I'm not saying that you have to read the entire Bible in order to properly understand your daily bread Bible verse devotional. But what I am saying, and as we will unfold, particularly so next week when we look at Proverbs 22.6, we need to keep the entirety of the Bible's message 
in our minds as we're reading any individual verse. Got to keep these whole things in here because the best interpretation of the Bible is the Bible. And we'll see that more as we get into this next week. Now, so that's the context of the passage. Read at least the chapter that the verse is in. Better if you can even read the, the chapters before and the chapter after. The next thing that we have to keep in mind is the context of the people. Now, the way that I'm phrasing this is to mean when you are reading a passage, if you understand this passage differently than the original audience would have, you're off. The Bible was written in a particular time to a particular people, and that helps inform how we're supposed to read this. Let me see if you have heard of this example before. In Romans 1, verse 16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Have you heard the often given sermon illustration of the Greek word that's there? People will say, it's like, okay, well, the word for power that's used here is the Greek word dunamis. And from the word dunamis, we get the word dynamite. So, great big power, and that's what Paul is talking about here is the explosive power of the gospel. How many of you have heard that before? Yeah, some of you have. This is something that I've heard a lot. Now, beyond understanding what that means, I don't know how we talk about this as Jesus blowing up my sin or blasting me into heaven. I'm not sure what that means. But beyond that, we are, what we're doing is we're taking a modern concept and trying to read it back into Paul. Paul didn't know what a stick of dynamite was. That hadn't been invented at that time. What we're taking is saying, it's like, all right, well, here's a word for power that we have then applied to something else. That's not how Paul would have understood the word dynamis. And that's not how his original audience would have understood the word dynamis. So that's how we can't understand that. So when it says the power of the gospel, what the original audience would have remembered would have been the ability that God has. We're not talking about the power of a stick of dynamite. We're talking about the power of God who created the world with a word. That's a lot bigger of a power, isn't it? That means a whole lot more. Instead of when we try to get clever, we never do as well as the Holy Spirit, funnily enough. This is something that we have to keep in mind as we're going through. And this also keeps in mind when we take a look at cultural customs. When we read the story of the prodigal son, when we understand what the cultural customs were at that time, that brings that story to life. There are so many things that Jesus said that would have had everyone clutching their chests and gasping that we don't understand because that's not our culture. That's not a problem with the Bible. That's a problem with us. We are approaching the scriptures, so we have to approach these things in the way that they were written. This is something that we must keep in mind and learning what these contexts means so that we can better understand what's being said. So we have to take a look at the context of the passage. What is it saying in the whole of the chapter, preferably the two before and after? And then we looked at the context of the people. How would the original audience have understood what is being said? And now we're going to take a look at the third one which is the context of the prose. If you've heard of the first two, maybe you haven't heard of this one or thought about it as much. 
When I say context of the prose, it would have been better to say context of the genre, but then I wouldn't have had C and P and C and P and C and P for the third. So I had to change it to prose. But when we're looking at the scriptures, the scriptures, this is a volume of books that have been put together. And inside these books are writing conventions with rules dictating how it is that they're being written. We understand this today. If I was to say, I'm going to read from you a passage from a history book, you are then going to assume I'm going to read to you true facts about what happened in the past. But if I tell you, I'm going to read you some history, and then I open up the Lord of the Rings, you're going to be very confused. Say, well, this didn't really happen. And you're going to approach this very differently. But if I tell you, I'm going to read for you a piece of literature, an allegory that's meant to tell you something else, well, you're going to read Lord of the Rings very differently. It's like, okay, I'm looking for symbols. I'm looking for something that I can apply to life elsewhere. More is being said than what is being said. Same thing is true when we approach the scriptures. There are about 40 different genres in the scriptures. Now, most of these are very straightforward, but there are a few things that we have to know. For example, there is law in here, and that, has, that reads very differently than a parable. When Jesus is giving us a parable, he's not giving us an allegory. Meaning, when Jesus is giving us a parable, he has one point he's trying to make. That was the rules of the parable, and Jesus is using those commonly understood rules to communicate what he wants to do. So again, going back to the prodigal son, it's about the grace of the Father. That's the point. We should not then try to say, it's like, okay, well, the prodigal son, he's going, he's hanging out with pigs. This must symbolize the Gentiles. It's like, no, that's not what's happening here. We're not trying to pick up all these different elements that Jesus is not trying to communicate to us. That's how Western allegory works, where everything means something, but that's not how Israeli parables work. So keeping these things in mind as we go along is very important. And this can have greater implications than we think. For example, a big debate in Old Testament theology is what is the genre of Genesis chapters 1 through 11? Is this allegory? Is this poetry? Or is this history? And the way you answer that question, particularly in Genesis 1 through 3, changes how you interpret all the rest of the scriptures. There's a lot writing on this. This isn't just some English literature nerd trying to make genre sound interesting. This is something we have to keep in mind and brings a different view to how we do things. It's the same thing with the Psalms. We tend to think that the Psalms are kind of the easy portions of scripture. It's like when you're too tired and you know you need to read your Bible, but it's like, all right, well, I'll just read a psalm. It's like, that's actually not what you should do. The psalms are poetry. Poetry is using really big concepts and trying to squeeze them into a really small amount of words. That means you can't just skate over an image. You have to think about this. When he talks about that, a man who studies the word of God is like a tree planted by rivers of water. That's meant for you to stop and you to think about that. What does it mean to be a tree? What does it mean to be planted beside the waters? It's not just images that we just skate over and say, oh, doesn't that sound nice? He's trying to communicate to you a point. 
and it's worth sifting through and examining what it is that he's trying to tell us. So again, that's just a few of the genealogies, but there's a lot more. We have epistles, which is how Paul has written a lot of his letters, wisdom literature, like what we see in the Proverbs, we see law, gospel, genealogy, and so many more. Now again, it's not like, well, you need to know all these complex rules for 40 different genres, but if you can say, it's like, all right, well, you know, this seems all really overwhelming to me. I don't know how I can keep in context passage, people, prose, keep all of these things in mind as I look at each verse. We can sum it up basically in this question, is what does the author intend for me to understand here? If you approach the Bible with the understanding someone else is trying to communicate something to me, you will intuitively begin to ask these questions. Well, why is the author, what is the author saying? Who is he telling this to? And how is he doing it? Just knowing that you have to answer these questions is going to keep you a lot of times in the right lane for what this is supposed to mean. All of these things are really important. So, let's test it out. How does it work in Matthew chapter 18? Matthew 18, verse 20. So again, the verse here is, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Now again, if you have been a Christian and if you have attended a prayer meeting, almost certainly you have heard this verse claimed. Mostly because prayer meetings are sparsely attended. It's unfortunate, but this is how this is done. Now, I will begin by saying... The reason why they cite this verse is to say, oh, you know what? Even though there's only a few of us here, you know what? God is with us. That's the important thing. Now, are they correct in that God is with you in that sparsely attended prayer meeting? Yes, it is correct to say that. The Bible teaches that all over the place. Matthew 28, 20 says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Hebrews 13, 5 says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, which is a quote from Deuteronomy 31, 6. Old Testament, New Testament. God has been saying, I am with you in all times and in all places. So when we look here, we say, I was like, okay, is this just another way of him saying I'm here with you? Or is there something else he wants us to know? What is the precise meaning of this verse? One of the most helpful things I ever learned in seminary, Dr. Alan Ross had told us when we were preparing our sermons, he says, what is this verse teaching you that nowhere else in the Bible is it being discussed? And forcing you to look down into this thing and saying, what is this particular verse telling me that the others are not? forces us to look a little bit deeper. So let's begin. Our first context, the context of the passage. What's being discussed here? Well, we only have to go back a few verses in our immediate context to verse 15 to see what we're doing. The context is here in verse 15, it says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
Again, I say to you, if two or three agree on earth about anything, they ask and it will be done by them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Just the first five verses of that chapter changes how we look at this passage, doesn't it? There's no message mentioned of prayer meetings here. This is a message of church discipline. This is how we're supposed to approach things when we have sin amongst our people. Now, if anyone has ever had to do something like that, they know how difficult that is to do. To confront someone else about their serious sin is a very difficult thing to do. Now, here's the other part. If I was to just stop at those five verses, we might begin to think, it's like, okay, well, well, what's the big deal? Why do we have to do this? Confronting people is hard. Well, if we go back a little bit further, and we look at verses 5 through 9, we find out how serious sin is. It says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Oh my goodness. Jesus is very serious about sin, isn't he? If we were to allow someone to lead someone else into sin, it'd be better off if you had a 200-pound rock tied around your neck and tossed into the ocean. So we think, oh, well, my goodness. Well, this is a pretty serious thing, isn't it? Then we need to deal with this. And we look at, go back into verses 15 through 20, it's like, all right, well, if he's not listening, then we've got to kick him out and get him away from us as fast as possible. Like some sort of sin-diseased rap. But the scriptures don't allow us to take that approach. We don't get to look at somebody and say, okay, well, as soon as they don't fit in our context, knock them out. Have nothing further to do with them. Because if we look in verse 10, 10 through 14, So see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the other ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Well, that really creates quite a balancing act, doesn't it? In verses 15 through 19, we're told you have to deal with sin. And when we see in light of verses 5 through 9, this is a really serious thing we have to deal with. But at the same time, these are real people that God loves. So we need to figure out a way in which we can follow this passage to deal with sin, because it's a terrible thing and it creates a lot of problems and wreaks havoc on people's souls. But at the same time, we need to reach out to this person and try to bring them back to Jesus. And that's the whole point of this exercise of church discipline, is not to kick the bum out of the church, but to restore a sinner to Christ. Now, anyone who has had to be a part of that process Wouldn't you love in this moment to have a promise from God that he is going to be with you even in that process? What do you know? 
Verse 20. There it is. When we're here back in verse 16, when one doesn't listen, take one or two with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And then in verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. There's the promise that God is going to be with you when you have to go through this very necessary but incredibly difficult process. If you've ever had a child with you in the middle of a thunderstorm and they're already curled up next to you and every time that flash of lightning goes out, that boom comes in and they just settle in even closer. And what's the thing that you say? You say, don't worry, I'm right here. Now, when I've had to do that for my son, is that because my son forgot I was right there? No, he's plastered against me as hard as he can. But in my reminding him that I'm here, I'm calling back to his mind all the other times I've been there, hopefully, and to say, no, your dad's here. Things don't happen to you when your dad is here. Or when they do, it's for your good. Sometimes I have to say, I'm here as I'm holding him down for his shot. That's not pleasant times as a dad, but it's what he needs, and it's for his good. And this is what God is doing for us. Going into a church discipline process is a very scary and hard thing to do. We've had to do it as a church. It's not something we do lightly or with pleasure at all. But to have the promise of our Father saying, I'm right here. I know this is hard. But here I am in the midst of you. Is that not a precious promise? We don't want to let go of that. We don't want to miss that. But if you'd like something for your sparsely attended prayer meeting, I have something even better for you. In Luke chapter 11, In Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13, which I'll just summarize by starting in verse 9. It says, And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will, give, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then who are evil know how to give, give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? What we have here, God is more than with you in your prayer meetings. But he's here to give you good things. Doesn't always feel that way. Just like when I have to hold down my son for his doctor's appointment. Doesn't always feel that way. These are good things. So not only does God promise to be with you in sparsely attended prayer meetings or by yourself in your closet, but he promises to listen to you and to be an even better father than you are to your children. I'm a father to two children, and I love my children deeply. But I am a pale imitation of what the fatherhood of God looks like. 
There are times when I will give in to my children's wants, even though that's not the best for them. To give them more cookies when they've had enough sugar already. I don't always have my children's best interests in mind. Sometimes I parent selfishly and parent out of my own desires and goals for quiet, even if that means another cookie. But God's not like that. And that when we give our request to him, sometimes we're asking for scorpions and we think we're asking for eggs. Sometimes we're asking for rocks, thinking we're asking for bread. And instead, he gives us what we actually need. This is what it means to look at the scriptures properly. And these promises that he gives to us are worth our examination. And they're worth the work that it takes to get to this point. So, what's our takeaway today? Is God has given you precisely what he wants to give to you in his word. Nothing is wasted or unnecessary. What God is giving to you is exactly what you need. So approach it in the way that it was meant to be approached. This book was not written by Americans last week. This was written in an ancient context that was written and was written at a time of mud houses and ox plows. But it still has everything to say in a world of AI and cell phones. We need to approach it accordingly. Approach this as a divinely inspired book that is meant to tell you something today. And most importantly, what this is telling you and what we need to interpret correctly is that you and I are sinners. You and I don't deserve to have our prayers answered. You and I deserve to be sent out from God's presence never to return. But the heart of the Father is to seek after the sheep that was lost. And to bring them home. And to do so at the shepherd's cost. Here, Jesus has sought after us. He bought us with his own blood. Died the death that we should have died after living the life that we should have lived. And now commands us to surrender our lives to him. To trust him with everything that we have. And he promises, because he's risen from the dead himself. That's not poetry. That's history. He's risen from the dead, conquered death, and now invites us to be a part of that. This is the message of the scriptures. It's worth our precise examination so that we'll find the comfort, joy, and instruction that he has meant for us to have. So I hope in these next few weeks that this would be something that will be interesting to you, something that will give you a chance to look at these things, not so that we can be Theological know-it-alls condemning those who use these verses improperly. Don't become that. Knowledge puffs up. Paul warns us about that. But instead, so that we use these verses to be able to bring comfort to these people so that they understand what God wants them to know. So I hope that you find this enjoyable. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we do thank you for your word that you have given to us, that you have given it to us with our good and your glory in mind. So I pray that as we take a look at other 
commonly misunderstood verses due to our own either lack of effort or lack of knowledge. Pray that you would help us to understand them and most importantly to apply them to our lives as we go forward. Oh, we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.